Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Good day, friends. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell. And I'm your host. This is episode 85. My guest today is Christopher Cameron. I recently came across Chris's new book, Black Free Thinkers, A History of African-American Secularism, and I knew I had to try to have him on the podcast. I'm so grateful that he agreed to speak with me. If you haven't heard about Chris Cameron, you will be in the coming months and years, I'm sure. His voice is a part of a growing chorus of voices that are lifting up the historic contributions of black freethinkers in America. As is so often the case when history is written and told, the thoughts and works of white people are noted. Thomas Paine, Robert Ingersoll, Charles Darwin, Carl Sagan, Richard Dawkins, and so forth. I'm sure you've heard a lot about these individuals and their contributions to free thought and scientific discovery. You might occasionally hear about Frederick Douglass, but do you know the story of Zora Neale Hurston, W.E.B. Du Bois, A. Philip Randolph, Langston Hughes, Nella Larson, Richard Wright, Elizabeth Hendrickson, Grace Campbell, or Ella Baker, to name a few? Dr. Cameron's book is an exciting, fast-paced read through history, some familiar ground but with a different lens opening new vistas for readers, especially white readers, who think they've understood post-Enlightenment American history. Dr. Christopher Cameron is an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. He's also the founder and past president of the African American Intellectual History Society. He received his BA in history from Keene State College and his MA and PhD in American history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His research and teaching interests include early American history, the history of slavery and abolition, and American religious and intellectual history. Cameron's first book, entitled To Plead Our Own Cause, African Americans in Massachusetts and the Making of the Anti-Slavery Movement, was published by Kent State University Press in 2014. His second book, and the subject of our conversation today, Black Free Thinkers, A History of African-American Secularism was published by Northwestern University Press in September 2019. His current book project, entitled Liberal Religion and Race in America, explores the intersection of race and liberal religion dating back to the mid-18th century and the varied ways that liberal theology has informed African-American religion and politics in the 20th and 21st centuries. 
This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you who contribute anywhere from a dollar to a hundred dollars a month to make it possible. So I want to say a heartfelt thank you to each one of you who contribute. It doesn't matter how much you contribute. The fact that you contribute to the making of this show is what matters the most. As you know, and as I've said many times before, I feel very strongly that we are all part of a conversation that is only now emerging in new ways, and that that conversation is about exactly the things that Chris and I discuss in this episode and the things that he writes about in his amazing book. If you'd like to be a part of this community, making this podcast available for free to anyone who wants to listen, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. There you can make a monthly pledge of any amount you like, from $1 up to whatever you think it's worth. At the $5 per month level, you'll be invited to the private Facebook group for members of the community. I'm really looking forward to meeting you and interacting with you over there. Okay, enough about all of that. Here's my conversation with Chris Cameron. Chris, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, been really enjoying your new book, Black Free Thinkers, A History of African American Secularism. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it. Uh, and then, you know, talking a little bit about your personal story and kind of where all of this came from for you. I've had conversations with various different uh, leaders and thinkers in the uh, black secular movement in, in contemporary times. And of course, these names come up, the people that you write about in the book. Um, but I've, it's so amazing to have it organized and, you know, sequential and, and with these really interesting stories and quotes. And um, so first of all, just thank you for all your amazing work here on putting this together. Yeah, it, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed the whole process. So you're looking at, you know, as the title says, the history of African-American secularism, and you frame this uh, with a 19th century term, uh, free thinkers. We still use that expression today somewhat, but it was definitely a more popular way of identifying um, in the late 18th, 19th uh, centuries. And I wonder... If that gives you, does that, did you feel like that gave you freedom to um, explore more? Like, I feel like the term is broad enough that a lot of individuals can fall under this idea of being free thinkers without having to necessarily be atheists per se. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I pretty much use the term the same way Susan Jacoby does in, in her work, right. uh, Free Thinkers. And my title is obviously sort of a play on her title with the addition of Black and, and African American. Um, but, you know, in, in Free Thinkers, she, uh, Jacoby, um, notes that the term Free Thinkers uh, is really pretty uh, inclusive of a wide variety of. Um, irreligious and kind of quasi-religious beliefs ranging from uh, atheism, agnosticism, uh, deism, and and even those who maybe, you know, believe in a God, um, but one that just isn't particularly involved in human life um, and in human affairs. So it does uh, provide me some uh, flexibility with sort of who I can discuss um, and allows me to include sort of 
uh, contested figures like Frederick Douglass, uh, for example, right, mm. who ranged through a number of kind of religious opinions and orientations uh, during the course of his life, but generally speaking, was always pretty skeptical um, of institutional Christianity and of uh, Christian ministers. So his uh, sort of anti-clericalism um, and lack of participation in um, Christian churches allows me to sort of place him in this category that also includes uh, sort of very um, kind of hard uh, atheists like Richard Wright in the mm. 20th century. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely, and I think we face this today, and, and you talk about this, that people go by expressions or identities that allow them to be uh, you know, vocal and, and participate in the discourse without being so controversial that they, you know, get pushed aside or, or even, you know, much worse, harmed in some way. So, um, you know, for Frederick Douglass, it's a much different context than for Richard Wright, you know, to, uh, you know, who knows what Frederick Douglass would have thought or believed or, or expressed if he were, you know, later in history, it seems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I... I, I suspect he probably would have, you know, come out as an agnostic were he alive 30 or 40 years later. Um, but, you know, he even does say in his second autobiography, My Bondage and My Freedom, uh, published in 1855, that um, there was a point where uh, he was an atheist or his opinions were akin to atheism. But then there were right. other points where he was, uh, you know, evangelical Christian and, and just his, his views ranged um, back and forth depending on the broader context. And that's one of the things that the book shows, especially for the era of slavery is that this context um, of the institution of slavery, the brutality, the assaults, the separation of families uh, played a really significant role in sort of the foundations of black free thought. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the first chapter. And you start with slavery and reconstruction uh, and, and really look at how, um, how slaves responded to um, the white man's God, the white religion, uh, Christianity, uh, and you know how it, for me it you know it it really challenged the the myth or the the narrative that I was raised with that um you know that slaves were highly religious you know we have the um you know the negro spirituals and there's just a sense that uh you know the, the early black americans the slaves that were brought from africa were really christian that they really embraced christianity and you you know, with a lot of evidence and and um, and detailed stories, really calling that into question and and say there are you know are many sociological reasons that that might appear to be so, and that people might have gone along with some things, but that there was likely a much higher level of non-belief or at least agnosticism in, during this a period of slavery. Can you t talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So in, um, in in making this argument, I'm building off of the work of, you know, Anthony Penn, of course, but also mm -hmm. historian Daniel Fountain, whose work, uh, Slavery, Civil War, and Salvation, argued that less than half of um, enslaved people uh, were Christians prior to the Civil War. 
Um, now, Fountain doesn't necessarily go in and discuss atheism or, or free thought or anything like that. But when mm. I read his work, that's something that kind of piqued my interest and, you know, made me kind of keep looking for instances um, of non-belief among the uh, slave community. Uh, one story that I tell in particular um, was of an enslaved man named Austin Stewart. Um, who uh, he writes in his autobiography that he published in the 1850s. He, he was a slave. He gained his freedom, wrote a slave narrative. And he discusses one scene in particular in his life where it's a Sunday morning, and he's uh, very uh, careful to point out that this was a Sabbath morning, um, and he was on his way to church, right? And as he was going, he uh, encountered his master, who was administering a brutal whipping uh, mm. to his sister. And immediately after, his master started joining him on the way to church, right? Um, and here, Stuart is, you know, recounting this. And uh, finally, he asked, can anyone wonder that the slaves feel there's no just God uh, for the poor African, right? That, that yeah. these types of instances um, are the uh, direct causes of non-belief, um, in slave communities. Now, my book doesn't necessarily discount the religiosity of a wide swath of the slave population. Sure. Many were Christians, many participated in sort of non-institutional versions of Christianity that Albert Rabateau explores in his um, important book, Slave Religion. Many also uh, adhere to sort of African traditions and conjure and things like that. Mm. But what my work does do is sort of add some complexity and gives us a more fuller picture of the religious and non-religious life uh, of slaves and shows that while most slaves probably were religious, we have ignored um, an important segment of the slave population that rejected all religions. Hmm. I, I found it so interesting, and I guess it had escaped my attention in the past, that th one of the abolitionist arguments, uh, uh, white abolitionists, or I guess black abolitionists as well, was that slavery w was harming the gospel message. Like that basically uh, we, you know, that we were pushing... Um, slaves away from salvation through the institution of slavery, and therefore slavery should be ended uh, as a gospel sort of initiative. Exactly. Yeah. And this is, of course, sort of a direct response um, to the pro-slavery argument that the institution of slavery is an important means of Christianizing yeah. um, this, this sort of barbarous African population. Mm. So... Uh, white abolitionists and black abolitionists were quick to point out that that simply is not happening, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Sure, some are being Christianized, but many more are being turned away um, from participation in Christianity uh, because of what they see as the hypocrisy of their masters and the sort of growing prevalence of uh, pro-slavery religion, especially after the 1830s. So this is, I mean, it's another example of, you know, colonialism and religion sort of going hand in hand. I mean, it's the one that touches on the American experience most specifically, but around the world, this was a European um, belief that, you know, we could Christianize the world uh, at the edge of a sword, so to say, or to force people into a particular uh, way of life, a way of believing. And of course, if you're in that, if you're on the receiving end of that, it makes sense that you would 
and and you tell many stories of of this even in the um, the Harlem Renaissance chapter uh, of people sort of nodding their head and agreeing to that uh, because it saved their uh, their hide. They um, agreed to go along with this Christianization in in name only to try to you know survive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and this this was really a strategy that black abolitionists began to develop in the 1790s. And um, it's sort of the origins of the politics of respectability, mm. whereby African-American leaders, and I discussed this a little bit more in my first book, To Plead Our Own Cause, which focuses on uh, black abolitionists. But you have leaders like Prince Hall, um, Absalom Jones, Richard Allen, and others in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, making the case that uh, African Americans need to be Christian. They need to display their, um, you know, morality. Um, always live upright lives. Don't steal, lie, cheat, or anything. And these. Uh, behaviors were seen as the basis for citizenship, right? Mm. Uh, that black people need to show that they're worthy of American citizenship in order to be accorded the rights and benefits of citizenship, that until they could show they were good Christians, they would never be respected and would never be given equality. Mm. So um, in some ways, this was this actually was an effective strategy uh, for building alliances with kind of like-minded white abolitionists um, during this time period. But in a lot of other ways, it sort of backfired um, and kind of kind of hamstrung uh, the black community, if you will, um, to Christianity. Yeah, and I think that we still live with the the legacy of that today. You know where? Oh, certainly. You know the politics of respectability across the board has become much too prevalent in our in our society. So, in the next chapter, you move to talk about um, the Negro Renaissance, the the you know resulting from the Great Migration North, um, mm -hmm. cities like Chicago and and New York. Is it fair to say that as time progressed and as sort of the world became more mo modern and cosmopolitan? that it just became a little safer for people to express their uh, free thoughts, uh, their, their divergent views. And, and this is why you see um, more of this coming out in literature and poetry and music, uh, more, more skepticism, more agnosticism being uh, freely displayed. Is it, is it a little safer now to, to do that? Is that one reason? I, I do think it's a little bit safer. Um, I, I think uh, along with just sort of modernization, urbanization plays a really significant role in the foundations of um, Black free thought during this time because you have individuals who were perhaps the only uh, free thinker in their small rural southern communities, right? right. Like Eatonville, Florida, or for uh, Zora Neale Hurston, or Joplin, Missouri for Langston Hughes, right? Mm -hmm. They would have been really isolated there. They wouldn't have necessarily been able to share their non-belief or their skepticism with other people. But once they come together during the Great Migration, and they're in Harlem, they're in Chicago, they're in these other cities, now all of a sudden they're around like-minded people who believe or don't believe, as it were, uh, some of the same things. So this just allows for a level of community. It allows for them to discuss their ideas, to 
debate ideas, argue with one another mm. in a way that just would not have been possible living in small rural communities. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, and it's so inspiring. I mean, to think about these authors that, you know, that we've known and read, you know, sitting together, having coffee, going to bars and, and really debating things um, is such an inspiring thing to think about and to read about, um, you know, because that just it's a milieu. Right. And it's so much amazing stuff comes out of that context, as you as you note in your book and as others have have noted, um, you know, the poetry of Langston Hughes and the the novels of Richard Wright. And I guess he comes a little bit later, but um, just so much amazing um, music and, and art from from that period um, that's just uh, so rich. And uh, it's it's I, I think it's cool to see the the traces of secularism within you know, that, um, that story. And I guess it's a little surprising to me that that's not celebrated more, or maybe it is, and I'm unaware of it in the modern, um, African American community where it does still seem like religion tends to dominate things. Is that a fair assessment or, or is there a presence of, of black secularism that the, the media just doesn't express or show us? No, I, I definitely think that's a fair assessment because a lot of these people, you know, we read them in junior high school. We read them in high school. You mm-hmm. know, I, most of my students have read uh, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, right. right? But they never knew that she was sort of an agnostic right. at times, a deist at other times, right? They never read any excerpts from her autobiography. They never read her anthropological works or anything like that. Um, that that sort of express her free thought. So same thing with Langston Hughes, right? Um, we've all read The Negro Speaks of Rivers, right? Mm. It, at some level um, in school during Black History Month or something like that. Um, but we haven't necessarily read some of his other poems that express um, religious skepticism or the excerpts from his autobiography mm. where he's discussing how he came to uh, be a non-believer. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of these folks... You know, I'm, I'm not really exploring um, a, a ton of uh, obscure people, right? These are mm. very well-known thinkers and artists, uh, but they're well-known um, for their intellectual productions, for their artwork, not necessarily for their religious skepticism. So that's one of the things that I'm trying to sort of contribute with this book is to just give a different perspective on some of these individuals and also tie what we do know about them to their uh, irreligious um, irreligiosity. Mm, yeah. And, and like anything else, you know, n- none of these intellectual movements or, or artistic movements happen in a vacuum. I mean, obviously it's all in response to context, which is why I love history so much and appreciate, you know, books like this that take this long view of, um, of, of a development through history um, and, and so as you come a little further towards our day, um, you talk about um, move the, the Communist Party in the United States and socialism and the way that many of the black free thinkers are also part of that movement. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could sort of briefly explain why you think that is like, why did people that were already free thinkers in regards to religion sort of also then gravitate towards uh, socialist and communist movements in the United States? 
Sure. It's sort of a dialectical influence, I argue. Um, in uh, 1924, the Comintern, uh, the Communist International, put out a directive where they very explicitly said that we expect all communists to be atheists, right? So this is the sort of default religious position um, of the uh, Communist Party. And so, you know, once people who are already free thinkers uh, you know, caught wind of that and caught wind of the irreligiosity of the Communist Party, that's mm. something that would have been very attractive to them, right? Um, and, and many free thinkers were also attracted to the sort of internationalism uh, of the right. communists, right? They felt that they could sort of express um, a clear kind of pan-Africanism. And um, so both socialists and communists likewise tied uh, imperialism and racism to capitalism. So um, those critiques and those political positions were very attractive uh, to black free thinkers. But then it's probably also the case that you had um, some African-Americans who were simply attracted to communism for its economic philosophy and political philosophy, but then later on, kind of came around to uh, the religious skepticism of it. So it, mm. it sort of works uh, both ways, I think, where you have free thinkers who are attracted uh, to them because of their irreligion, um, but then sort of black uh, radicals who are attracted to communism and then sort of progress uh, into free thinkers. And then in the black power movement, it evolves you know, into its own unique expression um, with the Black Panther Party and and others, Huey Newton and and so forth, who really took communism or the ideas, at least the liberatory sort of co- concepts of of socialist and communist politics and economics, and made it so specifically American, but also African American. Um, did did those and those leaders of, of of like say the Black Power movement were also religious skeptics in, in large part, were they not? Yes. Yeah, they were. Huey Newton, um, Eldridge Cleaver, uh, David Hillier, the Minister of Information for the party. Um, a number of uh, rank and file members uh, were all free thinkers. James Foreman, one of the basically founders right. and earliest articulators of black power uh, as a political philosophy, was also an atheist and writes um, very clearly about his atheism influencing his political thought in his autobiography, The Making of Black Revolutionaries. So, mm. yeah, the last chapter sort of um, aims to reposition civil rights uh, and black power as an important part of the story of African-American secularism and um, argues that the Black Panther Party in many ways um, kind of functioned as a secular movement and that the organ of the Black Panther Party, the Black Panther newspaper, um, was at times uh, a free thought publication in mm. giving space to the work of, um, you know, poets like Yvette Pearson and Sarah Webster Fabio to write poems and and other pieces that were highly critical um, of Christianity and um, that sort of celebrated uh, the secular humanism of the party. So it seems, you know, when we talk about, when I talk about and my colleagues talk about free thought, we're usually thinking about religion. And I suppose that is the primary genesis and use of that expression but I think in a in a more broad sense, like a lowercase f free thought, 
um, it, it makes sense that anytime you're challenging the, you know, sort of the received tradition that you, you are being a free thinker. And, and so to stand up and say, hey, you know, capitalism is killing us, it, you know, was a, you know, a common refrain for, for uh, black intellectuals, black uh, revolutionaries. I mean, they've been mm-hmm. saying fill in the blank is killing us for forever, right? So to, to yeah. sort of point out the next thing that's killing everyone is probably not that far of a leap. Uh, for them to say like, hey, slavery and capitalism are, you know, twins, you know, two sides of the same coin uh, and and Jim Crow and, and all the rest uh, is is it's really of a piece. And, and it's, I guess, somewhat surprising to me once I've learned this, that it isn't more common, you know, I guess. And I guess that's true for a lot of the things that I've learned later in life, um, whether it was critique of religion or, or politics that once you see sort of the 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 liberation theme in in so much of um p- critique of economics and politics and how it fits in with religion in the way that Marx said for example so you know around the same time um that it's not more common that we don't see more robust critique of um of these systems of power uh in our mm-hmm. present discourse yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the case in general, right? right? If if I go back to the subject of my first book, the abolitionist movement, um, you know, you would think that this would have been a widespread movement, and um, we we look back on it and expect that you know all Northerners or something were abolitionists, but right. uh, most historians estimate that roughly only five percent um, of Northerners had any involvement in the anti-slavery movement. Right. Mm. Same thing for women's rights. All of these sort of radical movements throughout American history, they've always had very few adherents. So it's just always the case that, you know, usually only have a a small slice of people willing to sort of speak up. Right. Right. And then of those people, it's an even smaller percentage that are sort of far left radical. Right. A lot of people. Um, are are part of social movements, but are, you know, a little more moderate trying to sort of work within the system. Right. Yeah. And Ibram Kendi's new book, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and in thinking about, you know, this idea that it's not enough to be um, to to not be racist or to at least work towards not being racist for for someone like myself to Mm -hmm. to being to saying that's not enough to be anti-racist is really the calling, you know, for for all of us that, uh, especially people like me and my my folks, my background, they've been part of creating the problem, um, is really the the, the measure, um, you know, sort of the the standard to shoot for, and how controversial this idea is even today to even to bring up racism, you know, in certain certain quarters, is. Um, you know, the whole narrative gets flipped on its head as if those of us that are working against racism are the ones perpetuating racism or something like that. So even yeah. even now, like to these concepts that you would think would be fairly widely received or widely understood um, are are controversial because they I suppose it's because they they challenge power. They challenge the systems that are putting, you know, money in the pockets of the, the, the majority. Yeah, they, they challenge power and they challenge people's 
sort of fundamental conception of themselves, right? And, right. and who they are, right? And saying that, um, you know, just because you don't believe a certain thing doesn't mean you're not part of the problem, right? right? And it makes people really sort of look deeply into themselves in a way that they may not want to or in a way that may be very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I guess that sort of brings me to um, the contemporary moment and you know there are this um you you sort of you know stop with civil rights and i mean obviously every book has to have an ending somewhere and um Mm -hmm. and but as you know you're coming out here in a few weeks and speaking at the black atheists of los angeles we have um, black non-believers which is a national organization and even in some respects international um yeah and so the so the beat goes on right like there's still black free thinkers there's like you mentioned anthony pin a minute ago one of the leading intellectuals in the black free thought movement today uh and incredibly i mean Mm -hmm. if my listeners haven't picked up a book by anthony pin you've you know you've really got to do that um oh yeah his biography or his autobiography is a, a great place to to begin um and i can put some links in the show notes about that but so this intellectual, artistic, um, you know, protest movement, if you will, continues. And I, I wonder if you see any any development. Like, is, are we getting closer to uh, a clear uh, understanding of, of, um, of black Americans being a part of the struggle for um, a free society, like a, like a secular society that is... Uh, pluralistic and open to everyone or is is are we still sort of like gonna are we still gonna be just be fighting that battle forever yeah um so the the afterword of the book sort of briefly traces mm. uh a, a lot of what you've just discussed and this is actually going to be a subject of a second volume good on, um Fantastic. black free thought after the civil rights movement i was going to include a chapter at the end of this book but then I got into the research and I realized there's there's too much information for one chapter. Oh, right? yeah. It would, be, it would be a hundred page chapter, if not more. So I'm just going to write another volume mm. um, on Black Free Thought after 1975. And um, th- that book will show that one of the key developments or probably the key development in Black Free Thought has been its institutionalization, mm. right? Mm-hmm. First with Norm Allen Jr. creating African-Americans, uh, for humanism, mm. um, then groups like Black Atheists of America, and then Black Nonbelievers with Mandisa. Um, all of these organizations are specifically trying to now bring together Black freethinkers in a way that um, sort of had been done, but had been done for other purposes, right? Mm. So the Harlem Renaissance brought together Black freethinkers, but it didn't necessarily do so because of their religion, right? That was... Um, from my perspective, a happy byproduct of the Harlem Renaissance, but right. it was really an artistic and an intellectual movement. Same thing with the Black Panther Party, right? That brought people together under the guise of a new revolutionary and radical political movement, and many of its adherents happened to be free thinkers. So now we have um, people specifically targeting folks for their non-belief. And I do think... Um, I do think they've made some important strides, right? And I think that they've learned from a lot of this sort of history uh, that I explore in this book. Um, And they've developed some very useful strategies. So Black Skeptics of Los Angeles, for example, founded by uh, Sakibu Hutchinson. Um, Some of the work that they're doing is actually 
uh, a lot of what black churches do, mm, right? Mm. So they're raising money for scholarships for uh, kids who were the, would be the first in their family um, to go to college, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're fighting for, you know, affordable housing and advocating for prisoner reentry programs and, and things that usually churches or social service organizations would take on. Um, and Hutchinson argues in her book, Moral Combat, as well as her book, Godless Americana, mm. that if um, black secularists want to have a broader appeal, then they need to be doing the things that black churches are doing. Right. Mm -hmm. That many people, they might not necessarily believe in the theology preached at a black church, but they feel that, you know, it's uh, good for community, but it's also good just materially. Right. And helping them find a job and, um, you know, helping them with, uh, you know, an after school program or or something like that. Mm. Um, So you are starting to see some of these black secular organizations kind of come around and adopting uh, some of these methods to appeal to a wider swath of the black population. And um, Anthony Penn notes in uh, one recent uh, recent history um, of African-American religion that includes nonbelievers that the percentage of black nuns has doubled over the past 20 years. Hmm. Now, some of these individuals maybe are um theistic but just don't necessarily have any institutional affiliation but it's also the case that many of these people are atheist agnostic or um some other religious skeptic right so we are seeing an increase in the number of uh black secularists and um a shift in kind of strategies for appealing to the black population do you think there's anything lost in sort of religious you know black religious skepticism for its own sake like you were saying a minute ago that it was sort of a happy coincidence that's like the harlem renaissance and um, black power movements were also intersected with uh, religious skepticism and today we're seeing Mm -hmm. more religious skepticism as its own cause you know as its own standalone um issue uh and and i wonder if that's um like sustainable because then you're, you're, you know, you're talking about black skeptics and I apologize. I said black atheists of Los Angeles earlier. You're, you're absolutely right. It's the black skeptics of Los Angeles. Um, yep. They're incorporating this social uh, political message with their, uh, their work and, and saying essentially that the cause itself is, I guess, and I'm, these are my words, not Sakibu's or, or yours or anybody else's, but like the cause, it seems to me that attracts people is, I guess what I would call, you know, liberation, you know, we're, we're trying to be free and, uh, and in the process of being free, one of the things that we free ourselves from is superstition that keeps us down. And, um, mm-hmm. but I, I've often wondered where the secular movement goes if, you know, if non-belief becomes an end in itself. Yeah. I do think that, you know, really from the early 20th century, probably the signal contribution that black free thinkers made um, to the broader American free thought movement is trying to um, 
explicitly combine their religious skepticism with their political commitments. And um, this is, it's sort of a broader turn, I think, in American free thought in the early 20th century with, um, you know, you start to see some more free thinkers pushing for gender equality, right, and, and participating in um, the suffrage movement in the 19 teens, uh, and then black free thinkers, of course, uh, pushing for racial equality and anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism. Um, these concerns weren't necessarily on the minds of uh, some of the leading white free thinkers of the 19th century. Right. And, you know, that it's understandable because many of these people were not themselves experiencing um, discrimination, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, f- for them, we see the same thing among white religious liberals, right? Like Unitarians and whatnot, that for them, freedom of conscience uh, was more was most important because they were you know physically and politically free to do whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, this has been a really significant contribution of Black free thought, and you know, I I think a lot of contemporary Black free thinkers, um, they're they're forming their own institutions and their own organizations because they believe and. Um, because it's the case that in many times, uh, mainstream atheists or secular organizations have not been as responsive to social justice efforts. Now that is changing. It's not changed completely. It's, it's a process. Um, but I do think this is something that, you know, historically and in the contemporary period is critically important, uh, to black free thinkers, right? And, Really, it it, it kind of relates to broader histories of um, of black and white political thought, right? Even if you know, if we go back to the American Revolutionary Period, for example, and and explore the political ideology of the people who we have records for, we see that even in the 1770s, American leaders and a lot of American um, lay people and the, the populists you know, got their political thought from Hobbes and Locke and and all these folks who focused uh, quite a bit on individual freedom and individual liberty. And they believe that you can never have a just democratic society without the guarantee of individual rights. Whereas, you know, at at the same period, African-American political thought uh, most often dealt with the collective right? Mm -hmm. That the individual can never be free unless the collective is free. We need to abolish slavery. We need to um, get rid of racist laws and institutions um, for the entire group if any one person is going to be free. So that kind of dichotomy developed very early in the nation's political history. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's sort of played itself out in a lot of other arenas of American life, including the free thought movement. This is exactly, you know, where I w- my head was at as well. And I, I think, I mean, I think the current state of the, the secular movement in America really reflects the fact that there aren't significant um, sort of top level leadership in these institutions that are, african-american or people of color Mm -hmm. and they have formed as you said uh formed their own institutions which is i think a fantastic thing and it also just reflects um 
what I've seen in other arenas throughout you know my lifetime. I was a Seventh Day Adventist pastor um, up until six years ago, and oh wow, yeah, and I uh, for a period of time was a pastor in the Philadelphia area. I was raised on the West Coast, and moving to Philadelphia. Um, it came to my attention, and I don't know how this had escaped my attention earlier, uh, that there were black conferences and white conferences. Um, and the, the euphemism was regional conferences because the, the white conferences were usually states, like so Pennsylvania was a conference and New York is a conference. And, mm-hmm. and then there were the Allegheny East Conference was a black conference that spanned parts of Ohio, parts of East, Western Pennsylvania, um, and, and so forth. So... Um, these were re- so-called regional conferences, and and I just would couldn't believe it. In fact, when I was applying from when I was an undergrad, finishing my senior year, and I was applying for work as a Seventh Day Adventist pastor, I sent my resume out to all the conferences. I sat down with the the yearbook and and sent letters and and resumes to all the conferences, including mm-hmm. the black conferences, because I didn't know that they were like I just was sending letters to every conference and yeah. uh, and I told one of my friends what I had done and he was like oh wow you probably won't hear back from some of those and um, I don't know that they're hiring white pastors and I didn't even know that there were black conferences and so when I got to my church in um, in Bucks County um, the nearest two churches to me were black churches that were not in my conference that I so I never saw those pastors at my uh, ministerial meetings, because they went to different ministerial meetings. It was so segregated. I just couldn't believe it, you know? And this was sort of yeah. an eye-opening experience for me and sort of led me to invest a lot of, you know, a little bit of my time in getting to know those ministers and meeting with them and, and having them show me the ropes around the city. Um, and I guess I say all that to say that um, the institutions were still favoring uh, a particular worldview, which was the majority worldview at that time, which was, you know, the white world and still is. Um, we, they talk about abolishing the black conferences and it's, you know, getting rid of that, that um, segregated system, but it's never like getting rid of the white conferences, right? It's always getting rid of uh-huh. the, the black conferences and getting rid of the segregation in that, in that way. And I just see that same kind of thing playing out now in the secular movement where you have smaller organizations cropping up at the margins to meet a need that's unmet and the primary you know institutions the larger institutions that have been around for a lot longer still dominated by white leadership and it's not you know i keep you know saying this to various people whoever will listen that it's not about like it is about representation but it's not just about making sure you have a person of color on your board or something like that it's that those ideas that you want represented in your organization won't be represented unless folks are there who have those things on their mind. And we still are so far away from from that, that if you bring up anti-capitalism or if you bring up um, other ways in which free thought and skepticism intersects with political ideologies, you, you basically get shot down. Yeah. I, I gave a talk once that was about dialectical materialism and the way it evolved in Marx's thinking and the way that as materialists, as people who don't believe in the supernatural, we ought to be, you know, investing our energies in material well-being and that that material well-being has everything to do with politics and economics. And, and it's just, it, you know, it just went over like a lead balloon, you know? So Mm -hmm. I just, Mm -hmm. I, I just, anyway, it's a long ramble to say, um, I just have so much respect for people who are 
are pushing from the margins and, you know, demanding change, as has always been the case. You know, Frederick Douglass famously, you know, that the power concedes nothing without a demand. And there has to be people constantly pushing. So, yeah, I really appreciate the work of of folks that um, on the ground, people like Mandisa and Sakivu and what they're doing. And then the people like yourself and Anthony Penn, who are back sort of, you know, working on the intellectual frameworks for it and, and reminding people like me who didn't grow up with this part of the history uh, as a part of my history um, that I've missed out on a huge portion of my, my education. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. If free thought and skepticism is, is about getting rid of the erroneous ideas in our lives that do us harm and getting more truth into our thinking um, I think works like yours are so invaluable uh, for, for I think for the Black Free Thought movement, but more importantly for for white people, honestly, yeah, to to read and understand. I, I do think that a lot of white free thinkers are coming around to the critical importance of social justice and um, political engagement beyond you know the traditional separation of church and state, teaching evolution in schools. Uh, stuff like that, right? You know, a lot of my speaking engagements that I'm getting um, are from, uh, you know, the American Humanist Association and That's good. American Atheists is running a feature um, of the book in, uh, in their December magazine. And I'm speaking at a bunch of uh, UU churches uh, that are predominantly um, white. So I, I think a lot of them are, are – you know, certainly coming around, right, and recognizing the importance and the contributions um, that Black free thinkers have brought to the movement and can bring uh, in the contemporary era. That's uh, that's so encouraging to hear, and um, so grateful for for what you're doing. Um, uh, before we go, I wanted to ask you a slightly more personal question about how this became the focus of your 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 life and your work. Um, Mm -hmm. whether you were raised in a religious household and then, you know, sort of got your way to where you are today and how you identify today. Yeah. Um, I wasn't raised in a particularly religious household. My family is, um, French Canadian. So, Mm. you know, we, we'd go to midnight mass on Christmas Eve and maybe we'd go to church on Easter, but that's about it. (laughs) Um, I actually got more religious, um, in, uh, graduate school. So, um, I started attending the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Chapel Hill, hmm. um, partly because, you know, I was doing research on African-American abolitionists. And of course, I knew the history um, of the AME Church. And I was also just, I was from New Hampshire. I had moved down to North Carolina. I was looking to connect with people sort of beyond my circle of graduate student friends. And I thought that was a good way to do it, right? So it um, like many of the black free thinkers actually that I explore in the book, it provided a sense of community for me, but I mm-hmm. realized very quickly that I did not believe the theology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was a, I was a believer in God when I first started going, but just most of the stuff they were preaching, I just really couldn't get with. So this was back in 2006, 2007. Um, I ended up leaving the AME church and uh, started attending the Quaker meeting. in Chapel Hill, partially also because I had read a lot about Quakers and social justice and all of that. Um, But I also just felt that something that was more 
um, sort of reflective um, and uh, frankly, just kind of quieter where I didn't have to express religion through my body, but really through my mind Mm -hmm. would be uh, more appropriate for me. Um, But there I felt sort of isolated, really being the youngest person by about 40 years and (laughs) generally the only African-American in attendance. Um, And so I think it was about a year or so later that I started coming across the works of um, you know, atheist writers like Sam Harris and, and Richard Dawkins, who, uh, you know, provided really compelling evidence um, and really compelling arguments for, um, for atheism and for non-belief. So it was probably about 2009 um, that I became a free thinker, but mm. I didn't start working on the book until, uh, I'd say, late 2012. Okay. Um, so I was... I was um, trying to connect with other black free thinkers online. And I actually, um, earlier in this uh, podcast, you had mentioned that, you know, you knew a lot of the individual stories and individual people. Well, when I started trying to connect with other folks online on Twitter and Facebook and all that, I started coming across various blog posts and, and, you know, articles about, individual black free thinkers hmm. and you know i was already a history professor i was nearly done my first book so i was looking for a second book project and um as i started coming across these stories of individual black free thinkers i realized like there's no kind of overarching history kind of tying all of this together right yeah we know a little bit about some people hubert harrison you know about nella larson right we know about these folks, but there's nothing, you know, that that sort of organizes black free thought into a coherent system of thought that's reflective of the broader context, something that develops over time. Right. Um, so for me, this is just a really great confluence of the scholarly uh, and the personal. Right. Where. Um, I could explore something that I was, you know, incredibly passionate about on a personal level, um, but that was also vitally significant um, on an academic level. And that could really give us a different um, picture of African-American religious and intellectual life. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And it was so urgently needed. In fact, I, I posted on Instagram yesterday that I was really, or maybe it was two days ago, that I was loving your book. And I posted a cover, a picture of the cover and said that we would be talking. And I got an incredible response. One person said, I, I was literally looking for this book. Like, I, I, you know, oh, wow. not, not specifically yours, but they were looking for a history of African-American secularism and, and hadn't found anything. And um, so they were like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> so I think it yeah, does meet a great. need. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's it's eminently readable. Um, you know, it's not. It, it has a lot of detailed stories. Um, mm-hmm. I, I found it read quickly. Like it's um, it's it draws you through in in the in the way that good storytelling should. And and I think that the stories really come alive. I I thought because I was sort of in a hurry uh, to to get through it so I could talk to you today. I thought, well, maybe I'll you know skim it a little bit and read sort of like the beginning and the ending of chapters and maybe skip over some of the stories. But I just found myself reading the stories, you know, because I want I was just drawn into them and I was like, I can't skip this. This is the this is the meat, right? This is the yeah the good stuff, you know that that people like you historians, right, dig out of you know letters and journals and 
You know, it's not in their main body of, like you said, we read Zora Neale Hurston. Yep. Their eyes were watching God. And that's it, right? Like you said earlier, like that's what we know of her. And, and so thanks to people like you, they, you know, there's so much more to know about her. And, and these stories are, they read like a, almost like a novel, you know, like being, being <laughs> drawn into their lives and the dynamism of the Harlem Renaissance has always been something that fascinated me. And, um, so thank you, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, like I said, it was uh, it, it was a pleasure working on this, you know, for, for my first book and some other projects, there have been parts of it where um, I was interested in the overall topic, but some of the research did seem a little tedious. And that was not the case hmm. uh, with with black free thinkers, which is why I. I um, think I, I finished it so quickly mm-hmm. right after I began researching it. It only took me about two or three years to get a full draft um, of the book because I was just so incredibly passionate about it and really wanted to share this uh, with everyone. Yeah, you can tell. Well, thanks so much uh, for, for being on the show and for sharing you know what you've learned. And I, I hope everyone will go out and pick up a copy and look forward to your your continuing research. Thank you again for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you were inspired and provoked to learn more about this topic, to get his book, and to broaden your understanding of the history of secularism in America. I'd love to hear what you thought. Please write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Perhaps as you were listening, you thought of someone who you think should hear this. Please share it with them. The single greatest way that people find out about this podcast is from listeners like you who share it with their friends and post it on social media for others to hear. To learn more about Life After God and to link up with all of our social media accounts and stay in touch, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. There you can join our email newsletter and browse the back catalog of episodes. If this podcast is meaningful to you and it's been a source of inspiration, please join the group of members and patrons who make it possible by visiting the Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. The price of a coffee per month goes so much further than you can imagine and grows the total base of contributors. In this way, more people will take what we're doing seriously and we will reach a much wider audience. Thank you again for tuning in and seriously, drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell and this has been the Life After God podcast. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details